Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. Lord, I just pray that you'd be with me uh, as I share your word, and I just pray that you'd help us understand. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Holy Spirit, this probably has to be one of the shortest lines we've done, and I think the Holy Spirit has to be one of the most uh, misunderstood and kind of confusing um, members of the Trinity, if you will, Um, and different denominations, different churches emphasize different things about the Holy Spirit, so it can be also very controversial. Uh, There's just a lot. It's just really complex when it gets to the Holy Spirit. Um, It feels so um, kind of mystical, and it's, it's kind of hard for Americans who are so practical and pragmatic and we, you know, we want to see results, uh, but the Holy Spirit has to do with things that are unseen. Um, if you're asking these questions, how do we know truth about God? How do I experience his love today? How do I change? How do we engage in prayer? Who is with me in the hard times? How do I know that I am saved? How can I have hope? It's impossible to answer any of these questions without talking about the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is incredibly relevant to you and I every day uh, from the beginning of our Christian lives to the very end um, and into eternity. I remember as a kid, my parents went through the children's catechism and it's really simple. It asks the question, question nine goes like this, what is God? It says, God is a spirit and has not a body like men. That's the answer. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. God is a spirit and has not a body like men. And I think there's a kind of fundamental truth there that God is not like us. And therefore, we shouldn't expect him to be completely comprehensible in the way that we can understand ourselves and understand each other. He's different. We are finite. He is infinite. We are embodied souls. He is spirit. He is not like us. So that's really important um, to say that there's still going to be some mystery about this. There's still going to be still some questions that are lingering. But thankfully, God and his word has given us some certainty about what we can say to be true about the Holy Spirit. And surprisingly, it's all throughout scripture. It's not just uh, in Acts. Uh, It's in the very beginning of Genesis, as we will see. So we're going to first look at who is the Holy Spirit and then what does that mean for us today? So who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's not separate from the Father or Jesus, the Son, but he's distinct as a person. Meaning we can say uh, that things are true of the spirit that aren't necessarily true of Jesus or the father. But it's important, uh, lest we emphasize their differences to separate them, that they're uh, absolutely one. They are one. They are unified. Christianity is not a polytheistic religion, but it's monotheistic. It's Trinitarian. Uh, So because God is one... Whenever God is at work, the Spirit is at work. 
And what this means is that when we talk about the work of the Spirit, we can go through the entire story of Scripture and we can see the Spirit at work. He wasn't invented or created, believe it or not. Some people have said this in church history that he was, um, you know, that, that Jesus became the Spirit. You know, that, that there are these kind of three modes of the Trinity. Um, no, the Spirit has always been, just like the second person of the Trinity. The Son of God has always been, and the Father has always been. So let me show you that. I'm going to try to do, in just a really short amount of time, uh, go from the very beginning of creation up till now, the present day, and show you how the Spirit is at work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1.1. And it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was there. He was active as God spoke and he made, the Spirit made these things come into being. Uh, He was creating all of the things that we see and all of the things that we don't see. But he not only created, but he sustains life and Job 1210, it says, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So, so like the breath that was first given to the first humans, the breath that you and I breathe right now is given to us by God. However, we know that things didn't go as they were meant to be. Even though we had been given life, we had been created by God, we rebelled against him. We went our own way. And God who created us had every right to, you know, just, just snuff us out and, and to remove us from his creation. But instead of doing that, he made a plan for our salvation. And this plan unfolded over time. It did not always look the same, but it always at its core, just like a seed has the potential for a full-blown tree, the seed of the very beginning uh, of redemption was there in the very beginning. Let's look at that for a little bit. In the Old Testament, God made himself visible to his people through a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. This is an actual, this is footage, I believe, in Australia of somehow fire coming up into the sky. I'm not a meteorologist. I don't know how in the world this could happen, but it gives us you a little picture of what that might have looked like. You know, the spirit of God leading his people through the wilderness. This um, idea of following God you know, it, it was kind of literal back then. They were following this pillar of smoke, pillar of fire through the wilderness. Um, it actually is a good metaphor for what it meant to follow God, for what it meant to be a, a person um, who, who knows God. Um, it says that Enoch, one of the oldest men that ever lived, he walked with God. It says that Noah, you know, Noah in the ark, he walked with God. And part of what this means is allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you and not to follow your own way, not to go off 
on the paths of others, but to follow the path that God has made for you. One, um, before I get to that, one tangible way this um, showed up um, was the presence of God in the tabernacle, right? So as they're going through the wilderness, they have a tent set up. And this is where the presence of God, this is where the, the pillar of smoke or fire would, would hover once they set up camp. And in the middle of the tabernacle, there was this holy of holies where the presence of God was seen. And there are all these ways that uh, that presence of God was buffered. In, in, in other words, they had all these priestly rituals. They had all these uh, things that they would do, for example, like sacrifices to protect the people from the presence of God. Because remember, the spirit of God is holy. So anyone who enters in the presence of it uh, would be killed. But the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, it was prophesied in Joel 2. This is still in the Old Testament. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And this is massive. Because the Spirit of God had been seen to the people of Israel as a column of fire. And God is saying, I am going to pour out that Spirit on you. And there's going to be these amazing things that are going to happen. These supernatural things that are going to happen. In other words, one day the Spirit of God would come down and live inside his people. And one day that happened. The first person to ever experience that was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. When he was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, the Spirit of God descended like a dove from heaven. And the voice of the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was filled with the Spirit. And Jesus, like Moses, led his people out of Egypt we talked about in Bible trivia, like Moses, who set his people free from slavery, Jesus set his people free from sin. He set them free from sickness, free from the possession of demons, free from death. But these same people killed him. But as we know, the same spirit that breathed life into the first man, Adam, that spirit breathed life into Jesus's body again so that he was raised from the dead. And that same spirit that came down like a dove onto Jesus and raised him from the dead came down on men and women. The day of Pentecost in Acts 2 It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This extraordinary event set the stage for every person who placed their faith in Jesus 
to also have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. There's no longer the need for a temple. There's no longer a need for separation. But God came and dwelt with us. And that spirit that lives inside Christians is renewing and making new life out of death. He's renewing each one of us from the inside out. And eventually all of creation will be renewed and restored to what it was always meant to be, which is where we are today. I'm going to try to tease this out for what does this actually mean on the ground for us today, for Christians today? What does it mean? It means life. (laughs) I think this is like a hundred point font. I, I should have gone bigger. It means everything. It means everything. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not uh, be alive in Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't know God. Without the Holy, Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have, um, you could say, life itself. I want to go through four different metaphors that have to do with life. Um, the first one is being born. The second one is walking. The third one is groaning. The last one is crying. There's so many different things to say, but I just want to focus on these four because I think they give us some good analogies in which to think about our life in Christ. In other words, our life with the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So being born. Jesus, when he said to this um, man who was asking, uh, how can one be born? born again. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you cannot be saved. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Notice the capital S spirit. That is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God. To begin a life as a Christian, you have to be born again. And this is what it means. The Holy Spirit just in the same way that he breathed life into you, your very first breaths, he breathes life into you spiritually, where you can be made from dead to alive. That that resurrection power is in you, and it makes you into a, a new person, a truly a new person. Blaise Pascal, a famous scientist, had an experience of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I wish I could read this entire quote, but it's a, a journal entry from him. He was reading about the crucifixion. He was reading about what Jesus did on the cross. And it was the year of grace, 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight for two hours fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. Pascal experienced that same fire that the Old Testament believers experienced. He experienced it in his heart. Can you imagine that feels like. If you're a Christian, this kind of life flowing into you is a part of your story. 
Now, I want to make sure you know that each of us have different ways that we are converted or that we we come to know Christ or that the Holy Spirit um, comes to dwell in us. Any true conversion to Christ is a conversion by the Spirit. It may be slow and gradual. It may involve a lot of uh, intellectual uh, debates. It may be um, that you can never remember a day when you didn't know Jesus. But all of those are the fire of God, the, the Spirit of God living inside of you. And the, the great thing about this is that this newness of life, it's not just a one-off thing. You know, like w- when we start off as babies, you know, we grow, but then eventually our body starts to decay. The life in the Spirit is not like that. We are constantly growing and growing and growing. And if you can imagine, eternity is going to be this expansive, generative overflow of life. That's the life of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's unlike anything we can imagine. Let's look at the next analogy, walking. This deserves a good amount of thought. Romans 8, 4, it says, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is all throughout the Bible. This analogy of what it means to follow God, what it means to be a Christian is to walk with him. And now we know that what, it, what that means more specifically is to walk by the spirit. And so that the tools that we have, you know, if, you, if you read in, in Galatians, the, the armor of God, And what does it say that that the main weapon that we have? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I don't know about you, but um, I I love hiking. I love backpacking. This is from the movie called The Way. It's the um, this trail in Spain. I forget the name of it. Some of you guys might have ambitions to go on this trail one day. I have a good friend who did it. Um, It's a pilgrimage. Pilgrim's Progress, one of the greatest works of literature, is an analogy for the Christian life and what it's meant to look like. And I I think there's so much rich stuff here because walking is hard. A lot of times we'd rather do anything but walk. We'd rather uh, ride a bike, take the tea, drive, fly, hop on a scooter, a Segway, whatever it is. But walking is hard. It takes putting one foot in front of the other. And what this means in the Christian life is that every day we're trying to follow the way that Jesus has set before us. He has shown us the path. He has said, these are my commandments. Walk in them. And so that's why the the word of God is this, this map that charts our way. And sometimes we are walking straight into battle. There was a period in my life when it felt like every day was a battle. And this wasn't a battle. I didn't go to war physically or actually. <clears throat> Excuse me. This was a mental battle. More than that, it was a spiritual battle. There were thoughts that would enter my head that were clearly lies. And I would have to fight them. I would have to tell them, no, this is not true. This is the truth and point to the word of God and and memorize the word of God and show that 
That way is the wrong way that's going to lead to destruction. And this way is the way that's going to lead to life. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. And oftentimes we stumble. Oftentimes we, we go off the path. We forget the way. The Holy Spirit will guide us back to the path. One step at a time. One foot in the front of the other. This is the life in Christ. It's a walk. It's a walk by the Spirit. Not going our own way. Not doing whatever feels good or what everyone else is doing. But following God wherever he takes us. The next metaphor of life in the Spirit is groaning. I love this verse. It says in Romans 8.22, a little further along in that great chapter of Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What this means is it's, it's not just us. It's actually all of creation. Uh, this is a picture of an oil spill. Uh, there's something that goes against uh, the way things should be when we see things like this. When we hear about uh, the, the, the way our, um, our world has been used and abused. Uh, creation itself groans and waits to be renewed and restored. And we've been given the spirit that's a first fruit. It means like we've been given a taste. We know that there's something more to come. But groaning is a part of our life. Uh, dealing with any sort of hardship, it makes you groan. It's like, man, not again. This is so hard. What am I doing? Um, we, we can groan in a way that's uh, despairing, that's maybe uh, with some contempt towards God, or we can groan with the Spirit and with creation, knowing that God himself wants things to be different too. And I think one of the best applications of this is in prayer. Further on, it says in 826, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Sometimes we have no idea what to say. <laughs> Some, sometimes prayer feels like lifting, trying to lift a weight that you know you could never lift. Uh, maybe our, our throats are too dry to even utter any sound. But the Spirit himself is groaning in a way that's too deep for words. Uh, anytime we pray, the Spirit is praying with us. Can you imagine? Think about that the next time you pray. The Holy Spirit has brought you to that place where you're entering into the prayer. The Holy Spirit has, is guiding maybe even your words in some way. And he is interceding with the very God of the universe, the one who created the universe, uh, to help and to bring change and to bring about the kingdom of God. And finally, one day these groanings will turn into that kind of satisfied, ah, that sigh. 
that, that sigh of satisfaction, that sigh of yes. And it'll be a deep, resonant, um, ah, <laughs> it's finished, it's done. The last thing is crying. In John 16, we see this, the Last Supper, this picture of Jesus and his best friends, his disciples. And he tells them a lot of things. It's a beautiful uh, section of John, uh, like 15 through 17. I really recommend you read it. But he tells them these things about, I'm going to go away. Um, and here in John 16, 7, uh, and, and, and the disciples don't really understand it. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, capital H, helper, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What's remarkable about this is that little did they know that this helper was the tongues of fire that descended on Pentecost. It was the the Holy Spirit coming with power and sustaining and maturing and growing his church up until now. And he's continuing to do that even today. he, he, He had to go, he had to ascend into heaven so that the Spirit could descend. And this is better than if it didn't happen. Our our sense of loss, our sense of maybe frustration that we can't see Jesus, we can't talk to him face to face. By faith, we should believe that this is better. This is a better way. There is a way that God is going to work that is unforeseen and something that we could have never imagined. This helper, this comforter, is being sent. The Greek there is parakaleo, the the helper or the comforter. I love that aspect of it. When we are crying, can you imagine just a few days later, Jesus had died and they had buried him. And I imagine there are a lot of tears being shed. And the helper, the comforter, would one day turn sorrow into joy. And now, us, who in our lives, we experience a lot of loss. The older we grow, the more we groan, the more we cry. We have the promise from Jesus himself, truly, truly, I say to you, you will leap and lament. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The last work of the Spirit will bring all people unto Jesus. We'll be uniting all things to Christ. We'll be the coronation of King Jesus. And all of our tears will make sense and will be washed away. And then we, we will start singing. We will start shouting. And it'll all be okay. Uh, The Holy Spirit gives us this hope and allows us to persist through hard things.